Amen, amen. Thank you, music team, for holding that down. Appreciate you. Uh, Pastor Kanan, uh, if you could go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Malachi as we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Malachi. We're going to be in chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first three verses. For you at home, we're in Malachi chapter 4. You can find um, a copy of the cross-reference sheet in the description. Uh, go ahead and avail yourself to that. We'll be using that uh, throughout the time this morning. So today is March 21st, and I'm going to ask you all a question that you're probably not ready to, to hear it. You, you, you may or may not uh, want to hear this question, but I'm going to ask you. Y'all remember those New Year's resolutions y'all started? How y'all doing on those? Exactly. You see, you see, what happens is you expect the question all through January. How, what's your New Year's resolution if you set one? I, didn't, I don't set them. I'm wise. I don't set those things. No, no, no. But in all seriousness, you expect to hear that question throughout January, maybe even the beginning of February. But when it comes March, April, May, no one asks you about your, your, your New Year's resolution anymore. Right. And, and for most of us, you don't want to hear that question because you've already fallen off the bandwagon on whatever it was that you resolved to be or do. So for those of us, don't show your hands because it might be embarrassingly low. But for those of us who have continued and pressed on in your New Year's resolution, I want to ask you a rhetorical question. Don't answer it, but I want to ask you, what is it that kept you faithful to your New Year's resolution? If you're still on the train, why are you still on the train? What kept you or what's keeping you on the train? And if you fell off the train, like 90% of us up in here, if you fell off the train, I want to ask you the similar question, what is it that caused you to fall off the train? What, what is it that made you not stick to your New Year's resolution? This is so weird just now. I got a whole group over here and then a whole group over here. Nobody in the middle. So excuse me if I ignore some of y'all for some portion, okay? Thank you, Mardashay, my dude. My dude. I'm just going to preach to you. My dog. What, what is it? What's the thing that's kept you on that New Year's resolution path? And what's the thing that has caused you to fall off that New Year's resolution? Think about it. It's the same thing. You were or you weren't living in light of the end result. When you live in light of the end result, you're able to endure whatever it is if that end result you deem to be worth it or not. So some of our New Year's resolutions was to get six-pack abs for some of y'all. And if, while you're crunching and you're burning and you're cramping, if you don't think that six-pack abs is worth it, you will not stick with your six-pack ab program. <laughs> I'm glad it's, he already got them. That's not fair. Some of y'all had a budget thing with your, your family. You're only going to spend so much on fast food. But then you got a little stimmy stim stim, right? And you started spending the money on fast food instead of saving it like you should. Yes, feel guilty, right? What, what, what was it that you did? And, and this is how you endure throughout the time between your, you accomplishing the New Year's resolution and you in the process of trying to, trying to attain it, is, is the end goal worth it? Because if the end goal is worth it, you will endure it. And if the end goal is not worth it, you will give it up. And you'll give it up with the quickness. 
And sometimes you'll give it up, even if it is worth it, because you're not seeing the results or the progress you want to see. You're not getting as, to where you want to be as fast as you might want to get there. And so you give it up. You know, there's a, there's a single word that encapsulate, encapsulates that thought, that idea that I just gave to you, and it's the word called hope. Hope encap encapsulates that idea. You stick to those things because you have a stronger desire in your end goal, and you have hope that your end goal is going to be worth all the time that you put in to trying to attain your goal. Hope is a really strong agent. Hope is powerful in so many ways. It can lift your soul in the midst of hard times. It can motivate you and cause you to endure even the worst of circumstances. You know, a nation with all the firepower in the world will win its share of wars, but nations with hope will win a similar share of wars. When you have hope, it'll drive you to do and be something that you never thought you could do or be or attain things you never thought you could attain because you have hope in something that's great. And so you put all your energy into it because you truly believe that the end goal is great. And so you grind, you endure, you stand firm, you do whatever it is to get there because you have hope that it's worth it. In our passage this morning, God is distributing hope to his people. He's distributing hope to a tired people. He's giving hope to a people who have just about given up on God. He's giving hope to a people who have literally been in bondage for 70 years in captivity to another nation. And now they're wandering in a, in a, in a spiritual abyss, wondering where is God? This is where we've been in the book of Malachi. And God is going to distribute hope. What's hope? Hope is the substance of endurance. That's how you endure. Because you have hope. Hope is what causes you to endure. Hoping, hope is something that you and me, we desperately need. And I know that you need hope because I know that I need hope. Because in this world, in this city, in this side of the city, in this church, we have people who are losing hope because you're in harsh circumstances. Some of you have family members who are literally on their deathbed, and, and, and you need to hope in something. We have marriages that are on rocky roads. Y'all need hope in something. Some of you yourselves are sick, and you're hiding your diagnosis. You're afraid of what people may think or say about you if they were to find out what it is that you have or may have contracted. Everybody's coming in here with a certain level of brokenness, a certain level of need. Everybody's bucket of hope is in need of being filled. Y'all need hope, I need hope. The social unrest in this country, we need hope if we're to see it through to the end. The cults that are ripping through our neighborhoods, we need hope if we're, if we're going to engage them well. Some of us are thinking that we're we're always going to be alone. We have fear of being alone. Hope needs to fill some of those voids. Y'all, I need hope, and you need hope. And you know what we do when, we, when, when hope seems 
seems like we can't grasp it, we tend to think that our works will give us satisfaction. And so we do good works in hoping of attaining hope. But good works show you your inability to attain something. It points you to someone who attained it for you. We'll get that, that, that's going to lead us into the gospel later. But up until a few weeks ago in the book of Malachi, we've seen people in despair and in disbelief. This is what we've seen. A people whose hearts have drifted from God and it's because of the circumstances that are around them. And we're in the very same place today because the circumstances around us have caused many to fall away from God, even in our own congregation. We may or may not have seen someone in a long time or, or some, somebody we haven't seen in a long time. And, and, and for some of them, it's because they've fallen away because they've lost hope in the God of Scripture. That's where these people are. Their circumstances are pulling them away from God. But we found out last week that as Malachi called them to heart change, as he called them back to faithfulness toward God, they said this in response in Malachi chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. They said, it's useless to serve God. This is what the people of Malachi said. It's useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? Verse 15. So we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. Y'all remember us talking about that? Those individuals who say that God doesn't work. That's what the people of Malachi are saying. God doesn't work. And we know that that statement in and of itself shows the arrogance of our hearts because God only doesn't work when he doesn't do what we want him to do, which means that we're arrogant enough to think that we are God's ruler. And when God doesn't answer our prayers, we discard him because he does not work. Yes, he doesn't work. He doesn't work for you. He doesn't work for me. The people of Judah are experiencing this. They're like, God, we did everything you asked us to do. But in reality, they didn't. And they said, God, where's the reward that I want for the good work that I did? And God said, no, your hearts are far from me. You gave me empty actions, empty worship, half-hearted worship, three-legged animals you sacrificed to me, which is, a, which is a, a display of what their heart was toward God. All they wanted was God's stuff. They didn't want God. And we talked about a couple weeks ago how it's, it's often that that's what we want. Some of us in here just want to get to heaven. And if you could get to heaven by any other means than Jesus, you'd probably take it. That's revealing the motives of our heart. We're not after God's glory. We don't want God. But the prize is the one whom we're, we're, we're going around to attain a goal. Heaven is empty without God. It's not that you want the end goal, it's you want the one who brings you there. But anyway, we're going to get there. Ooh, I'm going so far ahead of myself. The text is good. Last, uh, two weeks ago, we were introduced to a remnant. We don't know if they were a faithful remnant or they were a repentant remnant. But either way, we know that that was God's people, right? These people who, who all of a sudden remembered God and they started to encourage one another to worship God together. They recognized that only in God would they have fullness of identity and a workless belonging. 
And in response to that question, the question that the people of Malachi were asking God about is worthless to serve God. God said this in Malachi 3.18 leading up to our passage. And this is where we left last time. It said, you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. And so in our text this morning, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we're going to see the decisive, definitive difference between those who serve God and those who don't serve God. And the difference is seen in something the Bible calls the day of the Lord. That's going to be the, the, the content, the day of the Lord. Those who live in light of that day, the day of the Lord, will have great reason to hope because hope is the substance of our endurance. Let's look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. I'm only going to look at the first six words real quick in the CSB. Malachi 4, verse 1, the first six words. For look, the day is coming. Stop there. That word day there refers to this, this idea. It's a theological idea called the day of the Lord. This is one of the most confusing topics in the text is the understanding what this day of the Lord is. And it's really complicated because the word itself is multifaceted. The, the concept of the day of the Lord is multifaceted. One is it's multifaceted in its concept. Even the word day is confusing sometimes. Because day can mean a 24-hour period where the sun rises and falls, but day can also mean an era or a time period. Sometimes we say, you know, the day of the Lord's return, and we, we make it a 24-hour thing. The Lord's going to come back in a 24-hour loop. Sometime within that, between 8 a.m. And, 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 and whatever that 24-hour loop is, 8 a.m. again. Right? He's going to return sometime in a day, right? Or we say judgment day, the day the Lord comes and judges. It'll be one day. But it can also mean error. Day can mean error, especially when you're talking about something in the future or something in the past. You just say, in that day, which doesn't mean a 24-hour period. It means during that time, right? Or in those days in the past, it's, a, it's, it's more than a 24-hour period. So it gets convoluted quickly. What is the day of the Lord? In your cross-reference sheet, you see sometimes the day of the Lord is, re is referenced as something in the past, Lamentations chapter 2, verse 21 and 22 say that. It says that the, the, this is Jeremiah speaking about an event that happened in the past, and he's referencing the day of the Lord in respect to that. It happened already to some degree, or, or did it? Because Joel, Joel then uses it in Joel chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, talking about end times in a future event. This concept of the day of the Lord is multifaceted. Even its name, the way it's titled is multifaceted. In Zephaniah, it's called the day of the Lord's anger. In, Ze in, in, in chapter 2, in chapter 1, it's called the day of the Lord's sacrifice. Paul, Peter calls it in 1 Peter 1, uh, 2, verses 12. This is all in your cross-reference sheet. It's called the day of visitation. Paul likes to call it the day of Christ or the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the day of the Lord, seemingly, because of its multiplicity of, under, of meanings doesn't necessarily have to mean a one-time occurrence that happens sometime in the future. Let me give you an example of something you may understand. You have, you, you, everybody kind of thinks about that time, you know, you, you've learned, you grew up in church learning about the Antichrist, right? When the Antichrist comes, right? Which means he's not here yet. But in the first century, John said many Antichrists have already come in 1 John 2. So there's a sense in which Antichrist has come, but there's a future fulfillment sense in which maybe the fullness of the Antichrist has not. It's confusing. 
And it's a similar confusion with the day of the Lord itself. Here's what we know about the day of the Lord. This is what's definitive about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord can be seen or explained in these words. It is the day of reckoning. It doesn't matter when it occurs. The day of the Lord, to be defined well, you can simply call it the day of God's presence. The day of reckoning. Let me give you an illustration to help you with that. When I was a little boy, I have, a big, I have an older sister. And I was a little boy, my mother used to work a lot, and my grandmother would watch us all the time. And when my grandmother was home, she was off cooking, my big sister would see fit to be the boss and have me do things I didn't want to do. Keep pick that up, throw that in the trash, blow this in the sink. Y'all know what I'm talking about, little brothers and sisters out here? You feel me? It's that smoke. Now, and back in the day, I thought it was really bad. It probably wasn't that bad, to be honest. But in the moment, I'm like, why is she torturing me? She hates my life. Like all this stuff. She's making me do stuff. She's bossing me around. And then at my grandmother's house, around like 6 p.m., you'd hear a jiggling in the door. And it was my mother. And I knew the day of reckoning had come. Because I know that when my mother comes through the door, simply by her presence, everything would change for me. I would be vindicated from the tyranny of my sister. My sister, if you're watching, I love you. I'm just saying. I will be free. Her presence would stop the, the torment and the pressure and the pain that I was feeling and having to be subservient to my sister. All of a sudden, when she showed up, reckoning occurred. And it's similar to the day of the Lord. When God's presence comes, everything changes for you. The day of reckoning can come when God's presence is on you. When he shows himself, that is the day of the Lord for you. It says in Peter, it comes as a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to come, but in a very real sense, God's presence has come for many already. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a consummation and a fullness in which this occurs. What I'm saying is that we can feel it tangibly even now before that time. The day of the Lord is when God adjudicates in a tangible way, with wrath and with grace. The day of the Lord is unquestionably the day of reckoning. And God's presence is literally awesome. And when we say that word, I don't mean it in like the Ninja Turtle way. I mean it in the actual way. When you are in awe of God. You know what awesome means? When you see something and your jaw drops. That's awesome. For some of us, his presence is going to be awesome. We're going to see the Lord in awe of him. And for some of us, we're going to tremble in fear because we have not hated him. It's called dreadful and terrible for those who don't fear God. You remember in Malachi chapter 3 in the sermon called Care for What You Ask For and the people of Judah were begging God's presence back to the temple and what did God say? He said my presence is in butterflies and buttercups. Y'all remember that? He didn't say that exactly but he said something like that, right? He said when I show up, my presence my presence is gonna, it's gonna consume everything around me. My presence is like a crucible. All sin will be dealt with I don't care if you say you fear my name. If there's sin, I will deal with it because that is what, that's what's inherent with my presence being before you. God can't show up and sin not flee and burn like chaff. Hebrews says that God is an all-consuming fire. 
a fire that burns away chaff and false religions. It burns away inauthentic belief. His presence is the crucible that melts away the impurities of sin. All who enter the presence of his heat will feel the action of the crucible. The day of the Lord is multifaceted in its name. It's multifaceted in its concept, but it's also multifaceted in its purpose. And our text is going to tell us the two purposes we see for the day of the Lord. Malachi chapter four. Look at it again. Verse one. For look. The day is coming. Burning like a furnace. When all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. Stop there. One of the purposes of the day of the Lord is a display of his wrath against sin and sinners. It says that the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become Stubble. Who are the arrogant? The arrogant are those who have an inflated sense of self-importance. Those who have an inflated a sense of self-ability. The arrogant person does not trust or depend on God. The arrogant person believes that God doesn't work. It's like when you buy a cell phone for somebody, a brand new. You ever bought a brand new cell phone for somebody and then they start calling the cell phone stupid because it doesn't do what they want it to do? You'll be looking at other cell phones so dumb. Oh, it's so dumb. It doesn't even work. No, bro, you the problem. You don't know how to work it. It works fine. But our arrogant heart doesn't want to take the L. It would rather give the L to the, to, to, to the phone in the same way we do it with God. It says, for look, the day is coming. What does that mean? It means that there is no escape from it. It is on its way. And what's on its way? When all the, the arrogant and those who commit wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. It is my duty to warn you that the day of the Lord is coming for you who have not placed your faith in Christ Jesus alone for salvation and rightness with God. And there is no escape from his coming wrath, from his coming day. And he's using that as a reminder to his people that he differentiates between those who fear God and those who don't. Because they said, they said in Malachi chapter 3, that those who do what they want to do, those who commit egregious acts of sin, seem that they get away with it. Remember, they test God and they get away with it. But here God is saying, no, the day is coming where they will no longer get away with it. What should that do to your soul? It should give you a heart of evangelism and sharing of the gospel with those who are close to you but are far from God. We all know those people. But you know why our heart doesn't burn within us to share the gospel with them. It's either that we don't believe the gospel ourselves or we believe God insufficient to save their soul. You know you believe the good news of the gospel because you can't keep it to yourself. When you believe the good news is good news, you share it. 
You don't share the fake sale at Macy's. You share the real sale, right? When you know it's really good news, remember when we first heard the stimmy was coming? Text messages everywhere. Why? You believed it. But if you didn't believe it, you wouldn't be texting nobody. How much more value is it the soul of your friend who doesn't know the Lord Jesus and you have the key to life in the gospel of Christ? Why would you not share that? It's not just a comforting thing for the saints, it's an indicting thing for the saints. Because some of the saints aren't saints. Amos knew that. In your cross-reference sheet in Amos chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, he's speaking to the people of God, but this is what he says to them. He's speaking to the people of Judah, but look what he says to the people of Judah who think they're good with God. Look what he says. He says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. That's us who are singing, Maranatha, come Lord quickly, right? That's the church of, of, of Jesus here. We're singing, Lord, come, Lord, come. And, and Amos is saying, hold on, bruh. Be careful what you ask for. Because when God comes, he comes with the thunder. He says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? What is Amos getting at? It is inescapable. You think you flee this direction only to be confronted with this reality. We're told in the Gospels in Matthew 25 that the day of the Lord comes and when it comes, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it'll be unloving to... to not speak about that reality to some degree. But it's also not the sole purpose of the day of the Lord. It's not just a day of wrath. It's not just a day of, of pain and agony and fear. It's also a day of joy and a day of comfort. Look at verse 2. Same day is in light, in light here. He says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. What's verse 2? It's language of joy. It's language of hope. Think about what sin has done to you and the relationships around you. Think about the, the consequences that you're enduring in this, in, this, in this very moment because of sin between you and a brother. It doesn't matter what the, the, the issue is that sin has marred within you. It says that when that day comes, you will like, it'll be like walking outside after being stuck in a dungeon and the rays of the sun hit your face. You ever see that in a movie, how refreshing that looks? Well, the saints get to experience that for real. Because our circumstances are so harsh, they're so bad, they got us so crumped up. But then when that day comes, when God's presence is manifest before us, it's like the rays of the sun are hitting a pale face and we feel its warmth and its joy and its happiness and its good times that are rolling with him. Y'all, you got to believe the good times are coming just as much as God's wrath is coming for those who don't believe it. That is where your hope is, not in the good times, but in the God who promises to deliver you to them. It's so dope. Yo, look what he says. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing. I don't know about y'all, man. 
I need me some healing, bro. I'm broke in so many ways. Y'all don't even know, son. Y'all don't know. Y'all don't know. I'm so broken. I'm so sinful. I have, I have wandering eyes just like 90% of the other men up in here. I have hard time keeping my word just like 90% of y'all up in here. I go weeks sometimes without communicating with my God. I have evil thoughts about people wanting to do harm to them sometimes just like y'all. Don't put on the front. Y'all know y'all broken in the mud too. The way you treat your spouse is garbage. We're so broke. But the day of the Lord is encouragement for our soul. Because even though we're broken, God didn't demand perfect worship in order to attain this joy. He demanded authentic worship, that our hearts feared him, had faith in him, trusted him. And now that we trust and fear in him, this is what he says. He says the rays of righteousness will come down with healing in its wings. We get to experience healing in the day of the Lord. This is why we sing, come Lord Jesus, because we're sick of the brokenness. Y'all done, who, who up, don't raise your hand. Y'all done been betrayed before. But that goes away in the day of the Lord when God's presence comes. Some of y'all have been betrayed, violated, stolen from, victimized in whatever way it may have been. And some of y'all are the ones who did the, 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 the perpetrating onto somebody else. And the day of reckoning is coming for both. God is slinging hope. To his people right now in the midst of their suffering they're hurting remember where they are they're back in their homeland and everything is in disarray and they even got portions of themselves worshiping false gods and they're marrying people who are who are, who are, are serving other gods and there's divorce going on and beef and strife going on into between the people this is chaos that they're living in and there's only a few faithful who are holding it down like yo lord what are we going to do and god says yo i got you the day is coming my wrath will get on them and the, the wings of healing will be on you just hold on if you could but have some hope to endure because he's doing something I don't know what any of y'all's issues are I know they're probably just like mine but I want to tell you this people of God the day of vindication is coming it's going to be so glorious when our Lord returns, for those who fear God, we will be in awe of his return. Jaw drops about how awesome he is. But if we believe that, we must share that. We must tell people that. We don't want people being in terror when the Lord comes because they did not heed his word. Malachi chapter 4, look at verse 3. People make songs about this one. It says, you will trample the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Now, don't get it twisted. The song is perfect. We don't fight the battle. 
with our own strength. Notice in the verse, it doesn't say we swing our axe and hack up people and they become ashes under our feet. It doesn't say nothing like that. It says that we will trample them. The Lord does the work. We fight our battles by being dependent. We fight our battles through prayer and praise. He does the work. He says that we, our feet will trample the wicked. And I was trying to, there was something in, there was something in some of the, the language of the text where it talked about this is like language of redemption because it would be the same land that they would walk in where they were being violated is the same place where they will walk on top of the violators as victors under the economy of God. It was so dope, but I couldn't fully grasp it well. I hope that that, that little bit, you understand some of that. I, I couldn't fully grasp it. I didn't have time to, to fully get it. But this is what we know. The righteous will experience joy through enduring hope and the wicked will be consumed by the heat of God's presence. And what is the difference between the two? It's those who fear God. And in our new covenant era, the difference between those who experience joy at the day of the Lord and those who experience torment at the day of the Lord is what we have done with the person of Jesus Christ. He is the distinguishing mark and the determining factor between a joyous day of the Lord and a dreadful day of the Lord. What have we done with Jesus? Have we put our faith in him? Because only in him has justice been paid. We want justice in one sense, but we don't want it in another. We want it when it's in, when it's in, in the human term of, of people doing ill to one another. We want justice and rectification for those things. But when it comes to the vertical relationship with God, I want anything but that. I want grace at that point. I want mercy at that point. And I can attain grace and mercy because Jesus took on himself the punishment I deserved and my just punishment was placed on him. That's the distinguishing factor between me having a dreadful day of the Lord and a joyous one is my faith and trust that Jesus paid it all. And now all to him I owe. Only in Christ alone was sin punished. Only in Christ alone is the remnant redeemed. No one knows when the day of our faith will, the, I mean, the day of the Lord will come. But until then, God's people, your, your duty is to hope. Hope will see us through the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in. Will we be free from pain, free from sin, free from heartache, free from betrayal, free from sadness, free from depression, free from lies, free from bondage of self, selfishness? We have hope. And I want to make a key distinction, not hope and hope. Don't put your hope in hope. That's just wishful thinking. Don't put your hope in hope. Put your hope in the God who promises. Not in the promises of God. Put your hope in the God who promises. It's in him. Not in what you get from him. From him. In him. Put your hope in him. Put your hope in God's immutability. Immutability means that God doesn't change, which means he doesn't say I'm going to redeem you this day and cast you away the next. Put your hope in the resurrected Lord, the God who vindicates. Today's date is March 21st. And I think all of us would attest that these two years have been a doozy. 2021 ain't no better than 2020. It's all hard. It's all horrible. It's all tough. Do you have the hope to be, is your hope sustaining you? Or are your circumstances claiming you? Has your hope fueled you to endure? Or do you falter under the weight of the right now? God has given us something to hope in. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. We have hope that no matter what, because of faith in Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath of God and experience a joyous day in the Lord. 
We have hope from Galatians 6.2 that because of our faith in Christ, we have a Christian family that we can lean into during times of weariness. We have hope because in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, we have hope that even though one day we will die, we shall surely live. Those are the promises that come from God. You hold on to those. But I just want to give you one verse, the last verse in your cross-reference sheet. If you don't have any other verses, you're in the midst of harsh circumstances, hold on to this verse. This was my baptism verse when I got baptized in 2005. For I consider, Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Hold on to that for the rest of 2020. Write that verse and put it in your car. And remember what God has said. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Father, my desire is that you would um, that you would use something that was said to stick to the ribs of the people of God here. And I pray that somehow, some way, you would encourage their souls with the word of, from, from the word of truth and that you would draw them unto you, that they would worship you for who you are before they worship you for what you've done, that they would love you, Lord Jesus, that I would love you, and that we would no longer have to put on the front of perfection but that we would worship you with authenticity in our hearts, knowing that we are a sinful people in need of grace and mercy. And that we don't have to be in despair because we have hope. We hope in you, Lord. You're our only hope. I'm not getting through the next year without hoping you. These people, they, they, they're not going to get through healthy without hoping you. So, Lord, would you give them the substance of endurance this year? The same way you gave hope to your people during the, the, the time of Judah in the book of Malachi, would you give us hope now? Hope that our circumstances will not always remain as they are. Hope that at the end of the day, at the end of the tunnel, at the end of, of our time, we know that we will rejoice for there is a day coming where you will punish the sin but you will bring grace and healing to your faithful. Lord, I need that healing. I desperately need it. This week has been one of those weeks where I need your healing. And I pray that I would receive it and that they would receive it likewise. Lord, be glorified. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.